So from Acts 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And across to chapter 4 from verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought, it, uh, brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Thanks, Carl. Just a uh, note, actually, on the back, someone pointed out, on the back the, of the leaflet, it's advertised the Rural Bible Network uh, in August. There's a, it says there's a forum by Peter Bolt. Peter Bolt's not actually coming. That's me, uh, so, which is a bit of a shame. <laughs> much, much more exciting to get Peter Bolt, uh, but I'm going to be speaking on the Psalms of that, uh, if you're interested. Well, uh, what should the church be like? Uh, I think that's an important question. What should the church be like? And uh, what should the church do? Uh, you can go to lots of different churches. You can go to lot, lots of different churches uh, throughout Launceston. Uh, and you'll find that each and every church that you go to will do things a little bit differently. Uh, so what is important? And what isn't important? Uh, what matters and what doesn't matter? Well, here in Acts chapter 2, we get a bit of a glimpse, I think, of what is important, certainly what was important in the life of the early church. In Acts 1, a few weeks ago, we saw that Jesus promised to send his Holy Spirit to equip the church for mission, to reach the world. And in Acts chapter 2, we saw that the Spirit came and equipped the disciples to, to speak even in languages that they didn't uh, naturally know, so that people, 3,000 people were converted uh, in a single day. And this passage that, uh, that Nathan just read for us a moment ago follows on from that and it begins to show what those 3,000 people did once they had become Christians and how they lived together uh, and what they thought was important. It's uh, worth saying, I think, as we, as we begin to look at this passage and the answers that it gives to that question, it's worth, I think, issuing a word of caution uh, you see, it's easy to come to this passage uh, and to see a beautiful picture of the early church and to see a harmonious uh, and a wonderful church community, and it is, but I think that has to be read alongside the fuller picture that we get throughout the rest of Acts. You see, it's not that long before uh, there are issues that arise in the church 
Uh, it's in Acts chapter 5, only a few chapters down the line, when the generosity of the church is twisted by someone to their own ends. Uh, and they're judged by God. Or in Acts chapter 6, uh, we'll see the organic process of uh, people sort of sharing their money with each other actually has to become systematised uh, because some people were being overlooked uh, in, the, in that generosity. So this passage is, is not showing us, if you like, that the early church is perfect. Instead, it's trying to show, I think, what the ethos of that church was, what they really cared about. What does the church at its best commit itself to doing? That's what this passage uh, shows us. Well, we're told in in Acts 2.42 that these new Christians devoted themselves to four things, to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And we're going to work through each of those uh, this morning. So first of all, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. The apostles had been trained by Jesus over the three years of his earthly ministry. They'd followed him around. They'd been taught by him, instructed by him. And because of that, they had a great deal of maturity in the faith. In contrast, these 3,000 converts who'd just been converted a few days beforehand had no understanding uh, of, of the Christian faith, really. They uh, knew enough to be converted. They knew that Jesus had uh, died and risen again, that he was the Lord, that he was the saviour of the world. They knew what they needed to do uh, to be saved, but they still needed to know a lot more about how to live the Christian life. Uh, As uh, someone has said, it's a silly question to ask, what's the least that I need to know to to be a Christian? We often ask that question. What's the least that somebody needs to know to be a Christian? It can be a helpful question to ask, but a much better question to ask is, what's the most that God wants me to know about him? What is all that God wants me to know and understand about who he is and what he's done and the world that he's created? These new Christians wanted to learn that. They wanted to learn all that God wanted them to know. And they realised, you see, that the, the apostles had been set apart by Jesus to teach them that. These people were ill-equipped to disciple each other, but they knew that with the help and the guidance of the apostles, they they could grow in their Christian faith. And so every day they went to the temple courts to be taught, to be instructed, to be discipled by Jesus' uh, apostles. Well, I think in our rush to affirm uh, that the Bible and the Christian faith is accessible to all, uh, that it's accessible, as uh, John Wycliffe said, to the ploughboy as well as to the scholar, in our rush, I think, sometimes to, uh, to affirm that, we can lose sight of the fact that God also provides people uh, who are set apart to teach us and instruct us in the faith, those who have been walking along the journey of the Christian life for longer than we have. We can learn lots and lots from those people. And, of course, as a church, we set apart people, uh, pastors and elders, who we believe are equipped to be able to instruct us uh, in the faith. Uh, my job, in a sense, is to go away every week to study the teaching of the apostles that the early church was devoted to, the teaching of the apostles and the prophets who wrote the Bible, uh, and then to study that and to every week bring that for you to hear and to understand. James uh, Stalker, which is an unfortunate name really, isn't it? Uh, 
he wrote this beautiful description of the role of teaching and preaching. I, I just think it is really lovely. He wrote this. I like to think of the minister as only one of the congregations set apart by the rest for a particular purpose. A congregation is a number of people associated for their moral and spiritual improvement. And they say to one of their number, Look, brother, we are busy with our daily toils and confused with domestic and worldly cares. We live in confusion and darkness, but we eagerly long for peace and light to cheer and illuminate our life. And we have heard that there is a land where these are to be found, a land of repose and joy, full of thoughts that breathe and words that burn. But we cannot go thither ourselves. We are too embroiled in daily cares. Come, we will elect you and set you free from, you, from our toils, and you shall go thither for us, and week by week trade with that land, and bring us its treasures and its spoils. Oh, woe to him! says Stalker, who accepts this election and yet failing through idleness to carry on the noble merchandise, appears week by week empty-handed or merely, with merely counterfeit treasure in hands. Woe to him if going to that land he forgets those who sent him and spends his life there in selfish enjoyment of the delights of knowledge. Woe to him if he does not week by week return laden and ever more richly laden and saying, yes, brothers, I have been to that land, and it is a land of light and peace and nobleness. But I have never forgotten you and your needs and the dear bonds of brotherhood. And look, I have brought back this and this and this. Take it to gladden and purify your life. Isn't that a beautiful picture of what it means to preach the gospel? It means to go away to a land of rich treasures and to bring them back for the enjoyment of all of us together that we can share in the glory and the wonder of God. Well, that's what the early Christians were doing and they met in the temple courts because they knew that the apostles had access to that rich and wonderful land and they wanted to have access to it as well. We can learn from each other. Of course we can. That's why we have growth groups. That's why we encourage people to meet together in those contexts. But it's also true that we do a great thing here uh, on, on Sundays when we meet for the public teaching of the church. Well, that's what these first Christians uh, did in gathering in the temple courts. They were devoted to the teaching of the apostles. Second of all, they were devoted, though, to fellowship. Now, when we hear fellowship, sometimes we think of uh, uh, coffee and tea after the service, and that certainly is a part of what it means to have fellowship. There's no denying that it's a, a rich and a beautiful thing, and we ought not to, to belittle that, I think. But to have fellowship means uh, more than that. It means, in a sense, to, to share or to be united in something. And the length and the breadth of that fellowship that the church had uh, in this, these early days is expanded on in, uh, in chapter 2 and also in that section in chapter 4. We're told in chapter 4 that they were so united that all the believers were in one heart and mind. Uh, or in Acts 2, the kind of... What it means to have fellowship is illustrated, I think, by verses 44 to 46, where it says, All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods. They gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. So the beginning of verse 44 is a kind of a summary statement of fellowship, 
They had everything together and they shared everything. They had everything in common. Uh, And then what follows after that spells out in more detail what that means, what it means to have fellowship. And it mentions three things. So first of all, they sold their possessions and goods and gave them to other believers as they had need. So there was this great spirit of sharing and kind of camaraderie. The idea was not the idea of uh, communism or, or Marxism, uh, where the, the state owns everything, or whether where there's this kind of communal pool where everybody puts their money and then it's distributed out from there. The key word here is, as anyone had need. That is, when the need arose within the Christian community, someone would take the, uh, what they had, the excess that they had, and they would sell it and use the money to support the needy. So uh, a little while ago, some people I know had two washing machines. Now, what do you do with two, <laughs> what do you do with two washing machines? But they had, through circumstances, uh, ended up with two. And there was a young Christian couple in the church, newly married, and they needed, to, they needed a washing machine for their house. So what they did was they gave one of those washing machines away. In fact, I think they even gave the new one <laughs> and kept the old one for themselves. But the point is, you see, that... They didn't consider their own goods to be simply their own, but they were shared uh, among the church community. And it's a great encouragement, I think, when we see that kind of thing happening uh, in the church. One of the problems, I think, or one of the difficulties, is that we don't often see that. Uh, One of the complaints that I often hear is people will read a passage like this and say, but that doesn't happen in our church. And I often think, well, well, actually, (laughs) it probably happens a lot more than you think it does. But nobody stands up the front with a big banner and says, well, you know what, I've just been generous. But there's often a lot of hidden generosity that goes on that nobody ever sees. Whether that's organised generosity uh, through the work of the deacons or whether that's ad hoc, whether it's just people taking, doing things off their own bat. It's a great encouragement to hear those stories uh, and it's a great blessing as well to be able to do that, to be able to be generous like that, to be able to share with those who are in need. And it's a great expression of our unity in Christ. We ought to be so thankful, I think, as a church for those miracles of kindness uh, that people show to each other because they are gifts of God's kindness and gifts of God's grace. And we should pray that God would help us to do more and to share more uh, and to have fellowship in that way more and more. Well, these uh, Christians express their deep unity and their fellowship in the way that they use their possessions. They also express express their unity by meeting together. We've uh, heard how they met in the temple courts to be taught. They also met in their homes. And both of those were not just opportunities to be taught and to be discipled, but they are expressions of their fellowship and their unity. Please understand uh, then that irrespective of what you do, the simple act of meeting together is a testimony to our unity in Christ. So sometimes I think people think that coming to church, you need to do something in order to express unity. But sometimes actually just turning up is an expression of unity. It doesn't really matter whether you feel that what has happened was useful Uh, And in some ways it doesn't even matter if you feel as though you were noticed. Just being present can be a great encouragement and a great expression of unity. 
And please never believe this line, no one cares about me, no one notices me whether I'm there or not, because almost universally that is untrue. Even if no one, even if no one actually speaks to you on one particular Sunday, they almost certainly will have noticed that you were there. After church, I often find that I at most can speak to about five different people. Time just runs out and people you know, have to go off and do other things. But it's great. I love standing up every Sunday and seeing who is here and who isn't. It's a great encouragement just to see someone's face, just to see them across the room and to know, well, they came today because it mattered to them, because we mattered to them and because they matter to us. There are often uh, good reasons why people can't make it to church, but even still it's sad when they can't make it. It's sad because meeting together is a great joy and it's a great expression of our unity in Christ. And that's true of, uh, of church as much as it is of something like growth group as well. Uh, people often can't make it one week or another because of work commitments or sickness or family commitments or things like that. But it's always sad. It's always sad to get the text message that says, sorry, tonight we can't make it. I always think, well, that's a shame because it would have been nice to see so-and-so. We're united in Jesus. We have great fellowship in Jesus and our meeting together is an expression of that. I thought it was so lovely at Reg's funeral a few weeks ago to hear that after becoming a Christian, I think he missed one week of church in however many years. Isn't that extraordinary? What a testimony to the fellowship that he felt he had in this church community. Some of us struggle to make it once or twice a week. These Christians were so deeply committed to each other that they met every day. Well, these Christians expressed their unity, uh, their deep unity in the way they used their possessions. They expressed their unity by meeting together. They also expressed their unity by eating together, which brings us slightly confusingly uh, to the third thing mentioned in verse 42. Uh, That is, these new Christians were were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship and to the breaking of bread So a significant aspect of their fellowship was eating together. Now, to some ears, when we hear the language of the breaking of bread, that sounds to us a lot like the Lord's Supper. After all, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, we're told that he took the bread, that he gave thanks, and that he broke it and said, this is my body, do this in remembrance of me. What makes it difficult to know whether what is intended here is the Lord's Supper is Two things. One, there's no mention of the wine, which was part of the Lord's Supper that Jesus instituted. And two, breaking bread doesn't always mean celebrating the Lord's Supper. So in Acts 27, Paul is shipwrecked with his non-Christian, unbelieving uh, uh, crew. And he takes bread, breaks it and gives gives thanks. It's clearly not an, uh, an episode of the Lord's Supper. So not every meal then... Not every instance of breaking bread uh, is the Lord's Supper. Probably the most helpful comment that anyone has made, though, is that it's not the breaking of bread that is important. It's not the breaking of bread that makes something the Lord's Supper, but it's the context in which that is done. And here in Acts 2, we see that what is central in the fellowship and the breaking of bread of these 
people and these Christians in the early church, what is central is their expression of deep fellowship and sharing in Jesus. In other words, that's a long-handed way of saying, I think that the breaking of bread here in Acts chapter 2 does refer probably to the Lord's Supper. Not because they're breaking bread. Not because it says, and they broke bread. In some ways, that's entirely irrelevant. But because they're eating together specifically to celebrate their unity in Christ and to to remember the redemption that they have in Jesus. That's the key point, you see. I think, at the risk of being wildly controversial, I think you could begin, potentially controversial, I think you could begin a meal with your growth group by praying something like this. Heavenly Father, thank you that we are united by our shared faith in Jesus. Thank you that he died and rose again and that we share in that by faith. And thank you that just as this food that we are about to eat together nourishes us physically, So our faith in Jesus nourishes us spiritually. Thank you that in Jesus we have everything that we need for life and godliness. Would that meal be the Lord's Supper? Does it matter? Does it matter whether you call it that or not? It's not the name that makes it significant after all, is it? It's the fact that it's done with other Christians to celebrate the unity that we have in Christ in remembrance of Jesus' death and resurrection and anticipation of Jesus' return. See, that is actually far more important than what you call it, isn't it? If you eat together to celebrate that, does it matter what you call it? I'm not sure that it does. What about family meals then? Are they the Lord's Supper? I don't think so. The key element which is missing is fellowship with the church. And you might say, well, my family are Christians. Yes, that might be true. But that sort of misses the point, I think, which is to express our deep unity beyond our normal relationships. Even here in Acts 2, the implication is that they weren't eating eating in their own homes, but they were eating together in each other's homes. They were sort of going beyond the normal bounds of what they might do. And everywhere else in Acts, when they break bread together, they were meeting in each other's homes. And and there's the implication that quite a number of people from the local church are kind of gathered there to share in that meal. Which brings us to an even more complex question, which is, is the thing that we do with a small piece of bread and a little bit of juice on the first Sunday of every month, is that the Lord's Supper? Or is it, even if it is, is that the best expression of the Lord's Supper? They ate in homes, we eat in church. I don't think that matters. I don't think where you eat matters. I think you could do it in a restaurant if you really wanted to. What a great testimony to the staff. You could do it in a forest if you're part of the persecuted church. What we do involves food and drink, not much, but it does involve those things. And it's done in remembrance of Jesus and anticipation of his return. Is what we do the Lord's Supper? 
I'll tell you what worries me. It's worth saying too, I don't think that changing the form will solve this problem. The problem is, I think, that the Lord's Supper has become an expression of individual spirituality rather than fellowship and sharing in Jesus. So we sit in church with our eyes closed, looking forward, oblivious to what's going on around us. What concerns me is that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, lots of people join in, but when we organise a fellowship lunch, lots of people don't. Eating together with people in the church from all different walks of life, with all different interests and all different backgrounds and all different language groups, is a profound witness to our unity in Christ. And in fact, it's a more profound witness, frankly, than sitting in church and drinking a little bit of juice and eating a little bit of bread. The fact that people leave because they find it too difficult to stay, to stay for a fellowship lunch, is a witness, tragically, I think, to our disunity and our lovelessness as a church. That you find it hard to talk to people or awkward or whatever it is, is largely beside the point. Of course it's hard work. It's always hard work to deal with people. It's much easier to lock yourself you know, in your own room and, and not to have to do, deal with anyone. It's not about what we enjoy or don't enjoy, but it's about sharing what we have together in the body of Christ. If the reason that some people leave is dietary, then let's address that together as a church. But if the problem is that we can't be bothered to stay or have fellowship with other Christians, then there is a deep, deep problem. And in fact, I think the problem then is the same as the problem that Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians 11, where he says that, what you are doing is not the Lord's Supper and what you are doing is actually eating and drinking judgment on yourself. There are, of course, lots of other smaller ways to enjoy meals together as Christians, as Christians and those are important. We can do it in homes and growth groups and restaurants and they are important. But if fellowship lunches are the times that we set aside as a church to gather together as a whole church body then that must carry some weight and that must in some sense be important. It's completely arbitrary that we do it four times a year, but the fact that we commit to doing that together as a body must somehow be significant. These early Christians were devoted to fellowship through eating together in a way that celebrated their unity in Jesus and the redemption that they had in him as well. Well, they were devoted, these Christians, to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to fellowship, to sharing, to meeting together, to eating. Last of all, they were devoted to prayer. Prayer, it seems, not only on their own, but again, together. They were committed to praying together with each other. And it's a good question, I think, a great diagnostic uh, question, I think, to ask. How much do I pray with other Christians? We often ask the, the question, how much do I pray in my personal devotions? But a great question to ask is, how much do I pray with other Christians? Praying together is an important part of what we do together as a church. There are a number of ways that we do it. We pray together on Sunday mornings. Just because it's only the service leader praying or or the pastor praying doesn't mean that we're not praying with them. 
Uh, as the service leaders, actually, we met together recently to think about how we can pray in a way that helps other people to pray with us. We pray together on Sunday mornings. We pray together in our growth groups. One of the things I've done before with uh, a growth group in, in another place was that once a month we'd set aside a, a whole evening just to pray. So we wouldn't do a Bible study, but we'd just talk about things that we could pray for. We'd have our own monthly prayer meeting. Uh, and it's something I've not told my growth group, but uh, I'm saying it so that they can hold me to account. It's one, something I'd love to do with my uh, present growth group as well. Because prayer is such an important part of what we do together. We pray together in our monthly missions prayer meetings before church. Those are small affairs, but it's encouraging, I think, to see that those have grown in the last six months. It's great to gather together to pray for the gospel to go out. We pray together when we meet with other Christians. I remember I used to visit uh, some friends of mine in Canberra, and one of my friends felt so convicted that we never prayed together, that it always felt awkward. Uh, And so we would battle through the the awkwardness (laughs) every Wednesday of trying to pray together before we left. And it is awkward because we're not used to it. But it's a rich and it's a wonderful thing to do, to pray together with other Christians. And it's a great joy, I think, to visit another family and to have dinner with them. Because one of the things that often happens at the end of dinner with a family is that they pray together. And it's so lovely to sit there and to, and to be there praying along with the family. That is to hear them pray, to hear the kids pray, the parents pray. It's such a rich and a wonderful thing to be able to do that, to pray together to our loving Heavenly Father. We do those things in praying together, but I still worry that we're not a praying people. I worry not because prayer is another box to tick, but because prayer is the clearest evidence of our faith. Prayers of repentance show that we trust in Jesus for forgiveness. Prayers of gratitude show that we really believe that every good gift comes from God. Prayers where we plead with God show that we really believe that unless God helps us, no one can. Prayer is the great evidence of our faith. And so whether we are a praying people or a prayerless people, reflects in some ways on whether we are a believing people or an unbelieving people. Perhaps our first prayer should be that God would teach us to pray. Though that's a dangerous prayer, because learning to pray often involves great difficulty and great suffering. And it's also a prayer that God loves to answer. Well, what should the church be like and what should the church do? It's very simple, really. Four things. The church should be devoted to the teaching about Jesus, to fellowship, to worship, and to prayer. Let's pray. Jill and Heavenly Father, thank you for the church, the people that you are gathering from every tribe and people and language and nation the people that you gather who believe in Jesus Christ and who put their trust in him. And Lord, the church this side of eternity is an imperfect church. Uh, And we know that only too well because we are each imperfect people. 
But Lord, we want to thank you for the witness of these early Christians, the love that they had for you and the love that they had for each other. And Lord, we pray that their ethos and their principles uh, and the things that they were devoted to would shape the things that we are devoted to as well. Lord, we give you thanks that as a church, we are a church committed to sound teaching, that we are a church that loves to learn, that loves to discover the rich treasures from your word, and which loves to grow in maturity in Christ. Lord, we thank you that we are in many ways a generous church, that we meet together regularly, that we share the things that we have. But Lord, we know that we could do more. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us to do that. And Father, we pray that you would help us to be a church which loves to fellowship together, to eat together as an expression of our deep unity that we have in Jesus Christ to share not only the truth of the gospel, but our very lives as well. Lord, forgive us if the way that we live dishonours you and expresses more disunity than unity and help us to grow in the bonds of love for Jesus' sake. And finally, Father, we pray that you would help us and train us and teach us to be a praying people. A praying people because we believe that you are the God who saves us and gives us every good gift, the God with whom we cannot, without whom we cannot live. So, Father, we ask that you would answer these prayers, not for our sake, or so that we can feel good about ourselves, but so that the world might know that Jesus is truly the Son of God, come to save the world. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.